listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Those of you who are visiting, a TMT is a two-minute teaching. We've been in a year-long series called Belong, and we're following along with the church calendar and the lectionary, which is a set of scriptures provided each week to coincide with the church calendar. And with that, we've been doing TMTs mostly on spiritual biographies, uh, mothers and fathers, great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers throughout the church history um, who have gone before us and who have set an example for us in some way or another. And this, and this is part of our spiritual family. And so we're going to hear another one from Christina today. So please welcome Christina as she comes. Good morning, everybody. So I think uh, maybe we've had a TMT on Francis of Assisi before, but he has so many great stories that we're just going to go back to him. So Francis was, um, he lived in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries, and um, he, early in his life, gave all, all he had away to the poor and became um, poor for the Lord and an itinerant preacher and uh, many, many uh, good works and miracles are attributed to him, but he went around preaching everywhere he went. Um, but I want to tell you a specific story about Francis today um, that uh, the people in a little Italian village called Gubbio called for Francis because they were being terrorized by a very uh, ferocious wolf. And the wolf was um, killing their livestock and sometimes even killing their children. And um, so uh, Francis went out to meet the wolf, and the wolf came charging at him and was very ferocious and was going to kill him. And Francis made the sign of the cross over him and said, and this is recorded in a 14th century book of stories about Francis. Francis said, come here, brother wolf. I command you on behalf of Christ that you do no harm to me or anyone. And it says, the fearsome wolf closed his mouth and stopped running. And once the command was given, it came meekly as a lamb and threw itself at the feet of St. Francis. And so Francis had a conversation with the wolf, and he said, you have to stop killing people. You're scaring them, and they don't like it. Um, and he says, he says, this is what we're told, the whole town is complaining about you, but I want to make peace between you and the people. And so I promise that I will have food given to you regularly, brother wolf, by the people of this town, so that you will no longer suffer hunger. And I want you, brother wolf, to promise that you will never harm any human person or animal. And the wolf agreed by bowing his head. And so Francis then went to the people of the town, and he said, the wolf has promised not to harm you anymore, or eat your children, so, but he needs food, so you need to promise to feed him. And uh, they promised that they would indeed feed the wolf. And, uh, but they wanted some sign that this, the wolf had actually agreed to this. So it said, then the wolf, lifting his right paw, placed it in the hand of St. Francis. Because of this action, there was such rejoicing and wonder among all the people that they all began to cry to heaven, praising and blessing God, who sent Francis to them, who, through his merits, had freed them from the jaws of the cruel beast. And the story goes that the wolf uh, lived in Gubbio for two more years, going from house to house, freely uh, being fed and being loved, and he died of old age two years later. So some people, of course, say this is just a legend, and we shouldn't really believe it, that it has some kernel of truth, um, but of course shouldn't be taken literally. But I say, why not? The kingdom that is coming in its fullness when Jesus returns is already breaking into the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a kingdom that is marked by peace that comes through reconciliation, not violence. It's the kingdom where the wolf lies down with the lamb. So we should expect that 
Our scripture today comes from Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, verses 22 through 27, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Of springtime. It's kind of a stupid question around here, isn't it? You know, it's like saying how many of you love ice cream or, you know, days off or whatever. But, but we love springtime here in South Dakota, right? And I know this spring has been a little weird uh, with the, the crazy winds and the cold and then storms a week ago and stuff like that. But, and if you get outside, especially like on Monday this week, and just sit in the sun, I mean, it wasn't that amazing. How have we missed the sunshine? I realize that every spring I'm like, oh, my old friend is back, the sun. You know, we just, we just miss it. And every year that I, I get older, I understand more and more the idea of snowbirds. The idea that, you know, there, there are actually places in this nation um, during December, January, February, March, that are warm and sunny all the time. And here's what I discovered. Those places have grocery stores. They have houses. They have running water. People actually live there. And they welcome outsiders. Like, they're not opposed to other people moving there. Um, you know, as Taylor's going to find out, there, there, are, there are real people living there. And I got, I got to see this up close and personal uh, this February. Um, Jenny's folks moved to Arizona. I had never been to Arizona before. But they moved to Arizona, so we said, hey, we should probably go visit them. And I don't know when we'll go. How about, oh, um, February. No particular reason, but let's just choose February. Of course we chose February because that's about the 90-day mark where you haven't had any sun on your skin for about 90 days here in South Dakota, and, and you're really starting to feel it. And we went there, and, and the moment we got off the plane, just the warmth. We could walk out on the tarmac without a jacket. And then eating the oranges and the fresh lemons and the, the grapefruits. But most of all, way more than anything else, 
the sun. Every morning just greeting you, bright and, you know, not a cloud in the sky and warm. And you could just sit in it. And it was just, it was like a little slice of paradise. Um, Jenny's brother, Taylor, joined us for a couple days down there. And, and Taylor and his wife are living up in Minot, North Dakota. So you think you have a bad here, just talk to the people in Minot. All right, they, they, will, they will tell you a thing or two, and you will, you will thank God for the blessing it is to live in Sioux Falls. But Taylor and I, we took the girls out kayaking one morning, and it was perfect 75 degrees, no wind, this crystal clear blue water there on this little man-made lake, and there's palm trees all around, and we, I just, we just caught each other kind of looking around like, is this real? You know, where, where are we? And Taylor looked at me and he said, Dave, you know, it's been so cold and so windy in Minot that when I got off the plane, I actually got a little emotional. <laughs> he's a really funny guy, but he's like, I, I almost started to cry, you know, because it was so good to be out of the cold and the wind. And how much do we just miss the sun here in these northern climates? How much of a blessing is it? But did you know there's going to come a day when God is going to replace your need for the sun. I find that to be so fascinating. Here we are in the sixth Sunday of Easter season, and we're looking today again at the Christian hope. We've been talking about this for two weeks now. We looked at it with the story of Tabitha, the raising of Tabitha, and the idea that Tabitha's resurrection is part of the first fruits of the resurrection to come, right? Her resurrection is a sign to you. Um, it's, it's a signpost saying, hang on, your resurrection is coming too. There's more resurrection where that comes from. But then last week, we looked at the, the idea of the new heavens, the new earth, your eternal home. When God comes to be with his people and when he puts everything right, and that that's the future that we're hoping in. And this week, the lectionary actually gets even more granular as we look at the capital city of the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And the lectionary actually cuts out a few verses. Um, Tinley read this, this section from chapter 21, but it cuts out a few verses, which I, I don't really know why, um, that really describe the New Jerusalem in detail. And I would encourage you to go back and read that. It talks about, you know, the gold streets and the pearly gates and even the dimensions of the city. Like, did you know your capital city of the future is massive, 1,400 miles in every direction? It's a perfect cube. It's two million square miles just on the ground level. And there's so, so much we could talk about uh, the new Jerusalem. But for our purposes today, this passage that the lectionary puts before us, the big thing that jumps out to us is the light, the sunlight, the, 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 the warmth, the shining, this idea that on the new earth, God himself will be our light. We talked about this, that the central piece of the Christian hope is God coming to be with us. And our text today says that when God comes to be with us, when he brings this incredible city to earth to live with us and puts everything right, the text says that he himself is going to be our light, which offers us incredible hope. And I have four specific ways that it does that. It gives us, first of all, life. So the light of God gives us hope, and by that it gives us life. Every living thing on earth needs sunlight either directly or indirectly to live. You know, if the sun were suddenly to burn out, which people have been talking about, like how long is the sun going to last? But if the sun were to burn out, there goes life. It's done immediately, right? There will be no chance for life. And here in South Dakota, of course, we are kind of experts in this, right? We all deserve honorary PhDs in the importance of sunlight because we live such a long period of the year without getting any sunlight on our bodies. So by the time spring comes, we're nearly dead. 
honestly, right? Don't you just kind of feel like that? We're just nearly dead. We're, all, we're just barely hanging on by a thread. Um, you know, I take this little capsule every single day. It's called vitamin D, 5,000 micro units, and I take it from Labor Day in the fall until Memorial Day in the spring, and that's because I don't get enough sunlight on my skin, and therefore my energy level really starts to suffer. How many of you have noticed that here? Like, ah, yeah, I need, to, I need some sort of a supplement, um, or I start to really be dragging. And if you want a more extreme example, talk to somebody from Alaska. You know, in the winter in Alaska, they actually don't really have daylight hours. It gets to be dusk, kind of, for a couple hours, and then right back into the nighttime. And they have cases of massive cases of depression there during the winter months because human beings, every creature, needs the sunlight. We need the sunlight. Well, on the new earth, we aren't going to have that problem. It won't be an issue of, of trying to move closer to the equator so that we can make sure to get enough sunlight because God himself will be our light. He'll replace our need for the sun. Now, notice the text here doesn't say that there won't be a sun or moon on the new earth. It simply says they won't be needed. We'll have something so much brighter, so much warmer, so much more sustainable. An eternal, renewable source of energy that is God himself. God will be our light and therefore our life. Do you understand that? How amazing that will be? Notice the light will give life to everything else too. You know, there are going to be trees in this city. Lots of commentators um, speak about the fact that there's likely going to be massive parks and forests and trails, but also, like Christina was saying, animals there. There'll be animals on the new earth, and they too will receive their life and their energy from God as their source of light. Imagine what that will be like. No more longing in the darkness and in the cold and in the winter. God himself will be our light year-round, faithfully, never worrying about that burning out, should give you hope. So the light of God gives us life, but that's not the only thing. It also gives us harmony. Notice the word nations is mentioned twice in this passage. Verse 24 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the word nation here refers to the Gentiles. So Jerusalem, won't, the new Jerusalem won't be just the capital city for the Jewish people, but it'll be for all peoples of the earth who are adopted into God's family by Jesus. So God's not going to get rid of the diversity. He's not going to get rid of the nations. He's not going to make us a homogenous people. He's going to make us a harmonious people, a people living together in unity finally. And haven't you craved that for the last four months? As we see war every single day, haven't you just longed for that? Hasn't your heart just burned for that? Like, God, please, Jesus, come quickly and put everything right. This is our future, friends. The picture here is of the nations walking by the light of God, the kings of the earth bringing their glory to the capital city. So the picture is of this you know, commerce and trade and work going on. The New Jerusalem is this bustling epicenter of cultural exchange. But the big point of it is the nations are all getting along, working together. There's no tension anymore. There's complete harmony. There's no more war. There's no more racism. There's no more elitism. Look, the tree of life is there too. So as the tree of life was planted in the Garden of Eden, now it's been transplanted to the new earth, fittingly, right? And we see here it's apparently not just one tree, but trees on both sides of the river of life, kind of like here. We've got this river here and trees on both sides. And Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, it's more like a park full of the tree of life. 
And look what the tree of life does. Verse 2, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Doesn't part of your heart just say, Oh, please. I would just love for that to happen. The healing of the nations. So there'd be no more opportunity to go back to the broken, power-hungry, greedy, oppressive ways of the former earth. The nations will be healed, living together, working together, rejoicing together, worshiping together in perfect harmony. We're going to be busy, but it'll be perfect harmony. That's the future you're looking forward to. Under the light of their God, the nations will be in harmony. So the light of God gives life and it gives harmony, but it also gives safety and security. Look at this. The text says that there will be no more night. And that could be literal or figurative here as, you know, night um, back in antiquity referred to the time when evil things happened, right? Jesus was betrayed by Judas at night. John makes a point to say that. Um, Other places in the scriptures refer to night just specifically to say, like, this is when evil stuff happens. And even in our time, right, most crime happens at night when the, you know, the perpetrators can't be easily seen or recognized. So um, it's possible that there's no more night physically, but for sure what we know here is it's saying there will be no more darkness spiritually. God's light is going to come into this new kingdom, this new earth, and it's going to eradicate all spiritual darkness. It will be no more. Notice the gates of the city. You know, uh, with, with no more spiritual darkness, you have no need for safety and security measures, right? Notice the gates of the city are never shut. Well, gates, of course, back then were the primary way intruders would get into the city. So you had to be very careful about when the gates were open, when they were closed. But no need for that now. The gates will be open all the time. They won't be needed anymore because all the evil is done away with and God is king. I want you to imagine for a minute how different your life will be then when all the evil is done away with, when the light of God eradicates all the spiritual darkness. You won't have to lock your car anymore if we're still driving cars. You won't, you won't have to lock the door to your house. There will be no more identity theft protection, no more scam phone calls, right? No more TSA at the airport. You'll just walk right on board. They'll say, you're going hunting, carrying your rifle with? That's fine too. Doesn't matter. You can go right on board. Because all the evil will be gone. It'll be eradicated. No more police or military personnel. No more, no more um, jail or, or, you know, systems of dealing with prisoners. All that stuff will be gone in the new earth. Think of what that life will be like. So much of our lives it revolves around insurance, revolves around the evil in the world. You have to have it because of evil. All of that will be gone. God will deal with the darkness once and for all. Verse 27 says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So all the darkness in people's hearts finally removed. It'll be the ultimate fulfillment of, of Ezekiel's prophecy. Remember when God prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36? He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
What a day that will be when God comes to do that, how our hearts will rejoice. It'll be like in the last book of the Narnia series when um, the Pevensey children come to Aslan's country finally, or the new Narnia. Lucy says this. She says, I have a feeling we've come to the country where everything's allowed. And that's true, right? Everything's allowed when there's no darkness in your heart. St. Augustine said something like this in the 4th century. He said, love God and do as you please. And that's exactly, precisely what we will be doing. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and doing as we please. Can you imagine just for yourself what that will be like? Never having to check your own motives. Never having to worry about an evil choice again. Because what you please will be the right thing every single time. God's going to remove all the darkness from our hearts, bring us safety and security. So the light of God gives life, it gives harmony, it gives safety, and finally, it gives sight. You know, we learn in science class at a pretty early age that what allows us to see is not our eyeballs, but it's light. I got to do some refresher work on this with Livy's uh, eighth grade science class this year. Like, why does a pencil bend when you put it in water? And I'm like, I don't know, it just happens. But it's because of the properties of light and water and, and how light behaves as a wave and a particle. And Anyway, uh, not to geek out on that, but the reason we can see things is because light, uh, it reflects off of the objects that we see and then bounces back to our eyeballs and lets us see them, right? If there was no light, we wouldn't be able to see anything at all. And so here on the new earth, we finally will get to see as we were meant to see. We'll get to see all of creation as we were made to see it in its renewed state. We'll get to see ourselves as we were meant to be, these glorious, radiant creatures. And best of all, we'll get to see God himself. That's the promise. That's the hope that John sets us before us here in the book of Revelation. Let's start by thinking what it would be like to see the new earth clearly. C.S. Lewis imagines the new earth will be very recognizable to the old earth, just without all the brokenness, even more radiant and beautiful. And this too is in the last battle, um, the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is where the kids are coming again to Aslan's country. And they think they're not going to recognize anything, but to their surprise, they recognize many things. So it's not so different as they thought. Listen to this. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered. And they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Ettensmere, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caerparavel still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us, older ones, that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, 
When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door, and of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. See, friends, the new earth will have so many similarities to this earth. It'll be everything that you love, all the beauty that you love about this earth, except for with all the evil extracted out of it. You're only seeing the shadowed version right now. You're seeing the dim version. Then you'll see it in all its color, beautiful and radiant. I love how Paul puts this in Romans 8. He says, all creation longs and waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed at the resurrection. Right? Because the creation wants to be the way it was meant to be too. It wants to be put back right more than anything. N.T. Wright says this best, I think. He says, the whole world is waiting on tiptoe with expectation for the moment when that resurrection life and power sweeps through it, filling it with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. Oh, man. Don't you long for that? Doesn't your heart ache for that? One day, by the light of God himself, we will see the entire creation renewed as it was meant to be. And friends, you've never beheld something so beautiful. You've never beheld something so much that's going to make your heart sing. And when that day comes, everything's going to be put right. It's going to be glorious. But then that's not all. We'll also see God in ourselves rightly. Look at what our text says in verse 4. It says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So get this, friends. We will finally get to see God, the one we were made for. We'll get to see his face. The Old Testament says no one can see God's face and live. God, the back, God allowed his backside to pass by Moses, right, when he put him in the cleft of the rock. But he said, you can't see my face and live. Nobody's done that. They saw Jesus because he, he was in his human form. He sort of had his glory muted. But nobody has seen God's face yet. And yet we will. There's a day coming where you and I will look into the face of our creator. Face to face, we'll be there with him. I love how John Donay puts this, he says, I shall rise from the dead, I shall see the Son of God, the Son, S-U-N, of glory, and shine myself as that sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God himself, who had no morning, never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Isn't that the truth, friends? That's what we're waiting for, that's what we're longing for, that's what we're hoping in, that day when we finally see him, when our hearts are completely home. And then in finally seeing God's face, the one we were made for, we'll also finally see ourselves rightly once and for all. And look, I guess we're all going to get tattoos. It says that his name is going to be written on our foreheads, whatever that means. Um, in Exodus chapter 28, verses 36 through 38, the high priest was required to wear on his forehead a gold rosette engraved with the words, holy to Yahweh. Holy to Yahweh. And I don't know, um, you know, how that's going to be written on our heads, but we're going to have his name on our heads, so it'll be an identity thing. Like, you belong to him. You belong to him. 
Um, in a really weird way, it kind of reminds me of how, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends get the name of each other tattooed on their arm or whatever. And that gets really awkward when a breakup happens, right? Because you're like, oh, now I got Sally written on my arm, but I'm dating Jill now, and so what do I do with it? Like, you kind of get it scratched out, but you can still kind of see it, and it's, it's weird, you know? It's just weird. So you, I don't advise that, right? Wait till you're married, then get the tattoo. Um, but, but this tattoo will last forever and ever because we'll never stop being God's covenant people. There'll never be a time where that relationship ends. It will always be intact. God will be our God. We will be his people. That's what we're hoping in. That's what we're longing for. I love how um, Randy Alcorn brings us out in a beautiful little story in his book, Heaven. By the way, if you want to read more on this, this book by Randy Alcorn is entitled Heaven. It's mistitled. It should be called The New Heavens and the New Earth, but it's a fantastic book. And um, I was reading it all this week, just filling myself with hope. But this story is called The Blind Boy and the King, and this is written down in, this, in the book The Happiness of Heaven, published in 1871 by Father J. Boudreaux, who tells of a kind-hearted king who finds a blind, destitute orphan boy while hunting in a forest. The king takes the boy to his palace, adopts him as his son, and provides for his care. He sees that the boy receives the finest education. The boy is extremely grateful and loves the king, his new father, with all his heart. When the boy turns 20, a surgeon performs an operation on his eyes, and for the first time, he's able to see. This boy, once a starving orphan, has for some years been a royal prince at home in the king's palace, but something wonderful has happened, something far greater than the magnificent food, gardens, libraries, music, and wonders of the palace. The boy is finally able to see the father he loves. Boudreaux writes, I will not attempt to describe the joys that will overwhelm the soul of this fortunate young man when he first sees that king of whose manly beauty, goodness, power, and magnificence he has heard so much. Nor will I attempt to describe the other joys which fill his soul when he beholds his own personal beauty and the magnificence of his princely garments, whereof he had also heard so much heretofore. Much less will I attempt to picture his exquisite and unspeakable happiness when he sees himself adopted into the royal family, honored and loved by all, together with all the pleasures of life within his reach. All this taken together is a beatific vision for him. And see, friends, that's our story as well, you understand, right? We were once orphaned, hungry, and destitute without any hope, and the great king of heaven sent his son to earth to rescue us, to live, to die, to rise again from the dead for our sins. And through his son's work, the great king has adopted us into his own family. And we sort of get that now. We kind of see that now, but it's kind of like we're partially blind to it, right? We see it dimly. We see us through a glass darkly, but one day we'll see it perfectly. We'll see it. We'll see him face to face, and in seeing him face to face, we'll see the incredible creatures he's made of us as well. That's what we're hoping in. That's what we're looking forward to. Maybe you're here today, and you haven't been adopted into God's family. You haven't decided to follow Jesus. You're not a Christian. We are so excited that you're here with us today. We would welcome you to come into God's family through Jesus. He has died and risen again so that you can be forgiven and adopted into God's family. There will be people up here to pray with you. We would love to welcome you into the new kingdom today. But maybe for the rest of you who are Christians, you're saying, yeah, Pastor Dave, this sounds great. I can't wait 
for the warmth and the light of God's new kingdom to come. But you don't understand. I'm in winter right now. It's hard for me right now. It's been a struggle. It's been depressing. I'm filled with anxiety every day. What do I do about right now? I would tell you, dear brother or sister, this is precisely when you need this hope the most. This is precisely when you need to get this vision into your heart. This is what, this is what hope really is for. It's for the dark times. It's for the light times too, but, but it's pretty easy to stay steady then. The hope is for the dark times, and nobody knew this better than Job. You know, our brother Job, he lived many, many years before the Messiah Jesus ever showed up on earth. And, of course, Job is famous for having everything and totally losing it. Most of it he lost in a matter of minutes. Like he lost his ten children. He lost all of his wealth. He lost then his own health. He lost it all, right? All of it was taken from him. And in Job 19, he has this amazing place where he recounts all the suffering that he's in, and then he grabs hold of his hope. My prayer would be for you today, if you're really struggling in here as a Christian, if you're really grasping for hope, that you would do what Job does here in Job 19. Listen to this. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Maybe you're here today saying, I feel like that. I feel like the hand of God has struck me. I'm at the bottom. I have no hope left. And if that's you, I would, I would encourage you to listen to Job here. Listen to how he remembers his hope. Listen to how he grabs hold of it. This is, keep in mind, hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And he has this prophetic moment that God instills him with this future hope, the same hope that you and I are grabbing hold of. Job says, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. So Job's kind of gritting his teeth and he's saying, oh, I'm going to write this on a rock. I need to remember this during the dark days. He says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's been my prayer for us this week, that we would just, Lord, help us to yearn for this hope. Don't let this be kind of like, oh, I hope so, hope. Like, there's a 35% chance this comes true or a 50% chance of this hope coming true. But, like, let this be 100% the hope that we build all of our lives on. And maybe you need to do something like Job does. Maybe you need to write this on a rock somewhere. Maybe you need to put these scriptures, uh, you know, Revelation 21 and 22, somewhere up in your house so that you can read them often, so you can keep them in front of you. This is where your hope is. Don't hope in something silly. Don't hope in something in the next 10 years or 20 years changing or 30 years. Hope in the resurrection. Hope in the new heavens, the new earth. Hope in God coming as your king. Hope in God coming as your light when he puts everything right. Brothers and sisters, it might be dark today. I get that. And for the rest of you, you need to file this sermon away. If it's not dark right now, the chances are good that it will get dark at some point. Just 
weigh the odds. To live in this world right now means suffering. So no matter how dark it is for you today or no matter how dark it gets, you must remember light is coming. Light is coming because he is coming. And in that, we hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us without hope. That you are our hope. You are our light. We have nowhere else to go. We think of the disciples as they said to you, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. You have the words of hope. You are the hope in and of yourself. We have nothing else outside of you. So Holy Spirit, help us like Job to write this on a rock. We know that those bad days are coming, that they're ahead, that they come from time to time, that sometimes they stay for seasons. Help us in those times to grab hold of this hope even more, to root ourselves in it, to cling to it. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.